Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to State of the Empire, the Star Wars speculation podcast where we look for news in Alderaan places. Hi, I'm Cap, and as we inch closer to the release of Solo, A Star Wars Story, there are news tidbits creeping out and new trailers to analyze, but shockingly, not much. Tickets aren't even on sale yet. Granted, with our luck, as soon as we publish this, tickets could be on sale, and maybe we'll even have scans of the film's source book or something ridiculous, but what I'm getting at is, we're light on news. So, for this episode, we're going into the archives and dusting off some interviews with Star Wars personalities that myself and the State of the Empire crew did before State of the Empire was a thing, before Disney bought Lucasfilm. We've done this once before, in episode 27 of State of the Empire, where we dusted off a 2010 interview with Billy D. Williams. As we enter the 19-month gulf between Solo and episode 9, surprise, Ray was Bendu all along, we're probably going to have a new animated Star Wars show to talk about, and new comics and novels and all kinds of weird rumors to pick apart, but more likely than not, we're going to need to rely less on the news and more on tapping the wide world of Lucasfilm past and present, with all kinds of new content, including more interviews. So, we thought we'd take this moment to finally unload our back catalog of prequel-era State of the Empire content. In this episode, we're speaking with both Boba Fetts, the original man behind the mask, Jeremy Bullock, and the young Boba, Daniel Logan, as well as General Veers himself, Julian Glover, legendary sound designer Ben Burt, and three of the five or so people who puppeteered Jabba the Hutt, Dave Barclay, Toby Philpot, and John Coppinger, all of whom are storied names in cinematic puppeteering and whose credits extend beyond Star Wars. These interviews were conducted as part of Nerdy Show, the podcast State of the Empire was born out of, which I still do, and which you can find at nerdyshow.com. On these recordings, you're not only going to hear my voice, which sounds quite different from how it does now, as well as the voices of other Nerdy Show hosts, who also appeared on some of our first episodes of State of the Empire. We'll kick things off with Jeremy Bullock, who Hex and I met up with in 2010 at Star Wars Celebration 5 in Orlando. Jeremy, Boba Fett was a relatively minor role uh, in a film where you didn't even get to see your face. What's the film that you're most proud of acting in? Well, I'm still proud of, uh, you know, Boba Fett because he's such a fun character to play. I like to think that you always put something of yourself into the part. Although it was a small part and maybe there are loads of people would have got dressed up as Boba Fett and done just as well. One of my favorite films was Mary Queen of Scots, which Mm. had every actor, Shakespearean or otherwise, in it. And I was part of that. That was fun. 
and but I, I think I've had a terrific career over 52 years now, and I'm, st- I'm still working, so that's good. You did a couple of Star Wars fan films, Order of the Sith, Vengeance, and a sequel, Downfall, Order of the Sith. How did you get involved with those projects? Well, people ask you to do it, will you help? There's some new, new young directors that come along and they say, would you mind doing it? As long as people are not making something, a film, for money out of you, that's fine. You have to be very careful. And so you say, yes, I'll come along and do it. And there's some fun things they do. So you just get involved with it, just have a laugh, and not worry, not get too serious about it. What was your role in those films? Well, I was playing an engineer in one. I think I was playing myself in one of them. Oh, really? They said, well, look, there's Boba Fett. And I had to turn around and say, Boba Fett, where? <laughs> just carry on having a drink at the bar. Something silly. Uh, during your um, presentation on Boba Fett on the celebration stage, you uh, danced out to MC Chris's uh, Fett's Vet at the very end. Oh, you had to. Of course, that's the song about Boba Fett. Had you heard it before? Yeah. It's, it's great stuff. No, I just enjoy doing that. It'll just be part of it. Again, have fun. The fans have been brilliant here. Yeah, that was a fantastic way to exit the room. It's not a bad exit, was it? No, not at all. And uh, you have a, a memoir you did, Flying Solo. It's uh, on yeah, sale it's here. Yeah, it's done well. I mean, I uh, can only bring a certain amount of copies because it's in a slipcase. It's limited to 2,000 copies. And here, it's sold out, the copies I had. Mm. So then people get it online, and I'm very proud of the book. It's got a very, very intense tagline, unlike any other autobiographical work you are likely to read. And why is that? Well, you'll have to buy the book. (laughs) It's the mystery. He's got you there. Our interview with Daniel Logan comes from that same show, where he and Jeremy Bullock had done an onstage event together. You're really energetic in real life. I mean, now it's the end of the con, so you're kind of worn down. But you got to play young Boba Fett, and he's really stoic. How do you turn yourself down? Well, it comes to the point where when I'm on set, I have no fans. The fans are the ones that give me my energy. <laughs> Just someone coming up to you from the beginning to the end of your day and telling you how much they love you and appreciate your work. I can't even put into words, and you can't buy that. When it comes to acting, Boba Fett is Boba Fett. He's not me. Yeah. And it's like two worlds. When I move into Boba Fett, I prepare myself that I'm becoming in Boba Fett. When I walk outside the conventions, I become Daniel Logan again. And really what Boba Fett comes down to, you know, the more hungry he is, the more angry looking he's going to be. So basically starve me and I'll, you'll have an angry character. <laughs> when you uh, pick up your father's helmet on that uh, in that arena floor, is the head still in the helmet? No, the head is actually out of the helmet. The head um, separates from the helmet about uh, two to three seconds before it hits the floor. If you slow it down and you freeze frame, frame by frame, you'll see a shadow of the head actually leaving the helmet. True story. Did you do that investigative work yourself? I actually did. <laughs> People kept coming up to me like, oh, did the head fall out of the helmet? Did the head fall out of the helmet? Kind of like your nerdy question. <laughs> and uh, I would always be like, no, it was stuck. Django's head is so big that, you know, like, he had trouble getting on and off just in the morning. But um, it actually does come out, and I found out myself, and then I kind of was proud of myself, because I'd come to conventions and be like, hey, slow it down. And everyone else tried to say, oh, I came up with that. But no one ever told me that, you know? I told everybody that, and I was the one, well, me and my pops, because, you know, he's a big Star Wars fan, yeah. real cool, you know, N-E-R-D, nerd. <laughs> my friends come over to my house, and he's sitting in our living room, and all you can hear is, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and, and me and my buddies are playing Call of Duty, you know? And I kind of look at them all like, yeah, that's my pops, uh, 
Uh, he likes Star Wars. <laughs> and we kind of give each other's awkward look, and then we go back to playing video games. But behind the scenes, after conventions like this, do you have crazy parties or any sort of nightlife? Like, what does Daniel Logan do to decompress after a convention? I meditate. I sit in the middle of a corner, usually in the most loudest area, mostly a bar area, and... No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, these conventions are work, so it comes down to the point where not only do I get to enjoy working with them, but I get to enjoy hang hanging out with people who are like my family, mm. like friends that I've met over these years of conventions, and now we associate so well that we're like good, good friends. So, you know, mostly just interacting with my buddies. Last night was the um, last trip to Endor. I was a very lucky boy. I actually was fortunate to sit up close to George Lucas from the little uh, Indiana Star Wars thing. So that was really, really, really cool. Uh, George seems like he's taken a liking to you uh, with intoning publicly that you're going to be involved in whatever live-action project he comes up with. He, he said that? Uh, that's what I read on the Internet. That, like, he's implied that if there is a live-action thing, and it seems like there's going to be, that you would be involved with it because he likes you a lot. Really? Yeah. No way. <laughs> no, are you serious? <laughs> that's what I've read. I mean, it, the Internet can be wrong. Oh, that is so I don't, cool. I don't know where those quotes well, are. Well, I, I tell you what. Go to your Wikipedia I, page. <laughs> I, love, uh, I, I love George Lucas. <laughs> well, um, the live-action... I mean, Star Wars again. Anything with Star Wars, I would love to be a part of, you know? Yeah. I would give any limb of my body to be in Star Wars. Just like Darth Vader, just like Anakin Skywalker, you know? I would literally give a limb just to be a, a tree swaying in the background that gets green screened every day. But um, I haven't heard anything, you know? And I'm, George is a very creative man, and I mean, you know, he's one of those men. He doesn't like to give too much out straight away. And that's even to uh, the actors. So yeah. if the opportunity arises and they allow me to... Either audition or reprise my role. Oh, I won't let the fans down. Right on. Yeah. That thing about Daniel Logan being looked to for the long-discussed, never-realized Star Wars live-action series wasn't bullshit. It was mentioned a number of times, like in 2007 when Rick McCollum said at a Star Wars event in France that the live-action series would be on cable with a contract for 100 episodes, which he hoped would be extended to 400. Boba Fett would be a part of it, and Rick wanted him to be played by Daniel Logan. And also, weirdly, he mentioned that Expanded Universe characters could appear after the first 100 episodes, but not before. Now that there's an actual live-action Star Wars TV series that's been greenlit, maybe we'll see him again. But there's no indication at all that Jon Favreau's series is the same one that was in development hell at Lucasfilm years before Disney. Daniel did, of course, continue to play Boba Fett through the Clone Wars animated series, including episodes that were half-finished but never released. We actually saw a brand new scene with him in it at the 2017 Star Wars Celebration, elaborating on how Boba Fett got the big dent in his helmet. You can hear us detail the scene in State of the Empire Episode 32, linked on this episode's page. Next up is another interview from Celebration 5, this one led by Hex, with Julian Glover, who not only played one of the Empire's greatest tacticians and the scheming Walter Donovan in Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, but also Bond villain Aristotle Christados in For Your Eyes Only. Hello, my name is Julian Glover. I'm an English actor, as you can hear, and I'm appearing on The Nerdy Show. One of my favorite Imperial officers from Star Wars was General Veers, because he, oh, thank you. he seemed to be the only one who could actually deliver when Vader wanted him to do something right. That's right. <laughs> and he's, a, he's quite a strong man, isn't he, he's, um, General Veers? He stands up and he won't take any nonsense. And uh, although he is very obedient, because that's his job, he's not subsistence. He doesn't crawl and cringe, and that's why I like playing him. It makes him the exception to a lot of the characters well, on screen. Well, it does. Yes, it does yes, yes. 
course, it's a moot point whether he's killed at the end or not. No, nobody really knows where yeah. he was. And in fact, the opening was so wide that um, they talked about me coming back in the next film. But I couldn't do it anyway. I, I wasn't free to do it, so that idea went down the drain. Which I'm a bit sorry about. It would have been very useful at these conventions to have been in two of the Star Wars films. <laughs> yeah, I was always a little disappointed that of all the high-ranking officers, the only one that really made it back was Admiral Piet. I'm like, well, Beers was so he's successful. He's a worm. I know. He's a worm. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want that position. He knows what's going to happen. But Beers, he could have, like, if he was there at Endor, they could have just Admiral wiped everything up. <laughs> well, he's forgiven for that because he's such a nice man, the actor. <laughs> no, it's, it's, how was the, the difference between filming for, like, Empire and filming for The Last Crusade? Oh, well, completely different. In Empire we were entirely in the studio, a very small part, but I did it all in five days. And um, Indiana Jones was all over the place, wonderful locations, and uh, I'm working with Sean Connery and Harrison Ford and Steven Spielberg. That's the difference. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a really good part, a really good part. Yeah, that's right. Veers could have been in Jedi. <laughs> now there's an alternate reality I'd like to see. One where maybe there's someone operating the walkers on Endor that isn't going to let a bunch of teddy bears push them around. If his name ever came up in any of the old scripts Doug's been digging through, you can bet he'd have mentioned it. But we'll stay vigilant to see if we can find out what may have been, if there's anything documenting that. Now, Ben Burt, this is the man who defined the sound of Lucasfilm, not just doing sound design for the original trilogy and all the prequels, but the original three indie movies and Willow. The magic of what we understand as the sound of Star Wars is as much him as it is John Williams. This interview was conducted in 2012 at Star Wars Celebration 6 by master audiophile Mark with a C. Mark was on early episodes of State of the Empire, but if you're tuned in to the Consequence Podcast Network, you'll recognize him as the host of our recently debuted series, Discography, which is a sequential journey into a legendary musician's catalog. The debut series is about Frank Zappa, and you should totally check it out. But back to Star Wars, Mark leads in with a question about Burt's pioneering development of the audio black hole a segment of absolute silence before an explosive sound. I put it in, in sync with the flash of the explosion, but that just didn't seem to give it scale. This was supposed to be a cosmic blast. And then I began to think, well, sometimes you can get a surprise by having silence right before you want something to seem really loud. So I delayed the sound effect for a second or so after the flash in, in the space. And now I, I had created something like lightning and thunder. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have lightning and thunder simultaneous usually, unless they're right on top of you. And so we associate the huge energy of thunder with the fact that it doesn't come where the flash is. So capitalizing on that idea, that's what I did in that mix. And that gave us the sensation of the sonic charge. Oh, thank gosh that you did, of course, yeah. because that's it kind of shakes your seats. Um, also, of course, the, the classic E.T. story about um, coming up with some sounds, your wife wasn't feeling well. Um, this is what I read on Wikipedia, so it could be incredibly erroneous. Okay. Uh, apparently, your wife wasn't feeling well, and you grabbed some sounds to use in the film E.T. from this. It's true. Did uh, she? Was she embarrassed by this later? Yes, probably. <laughs> um, I haven't done it since. But I did set up a microphone on a stand in our bedroom, and uh, she was uh, had the flu. And during the middle of the night, she was snoring a bit and breathing rather strange. So I put the mic as close as I could to her to get a, a, a recording. And later, I used that for ET being sick. Wow. And I've paid for it ever since. Oh, I bet. <laughs> Audio editing has changed in immeasurable ways in the yes. last 30, 40 years. Do you ever long for the days of analog, or have you just had your share of scissors, hot glue, you're done with it, you are happy to drag and drop? I love drag and drop. 
but I do keep a room at Skywalker's Town full of all my old analog gear, tape recorders, spring reverbs, uh, mechanical devices to make sound. Mm -hmm. And I still go in there and make sound and generate sound once in a while because there's always the character of uh, improvised analog sound, which you don't get with many software programs digitally. You know, you just get something that's different. And I'm always looking for something different. Sure. So, uh, many times I want to harken back to the old ways because they've served me well in the past. So, head with digital, heart with analog, sort of? Yes. Head with, I love the, the aspect of digital I love the most is you can browse enormous libraries and you can sample things very easily. You don't have generation loss from you know, sound copy to copy. Those are great advantages. Sometimes you, I miss that spontaneity of working with physical objects to make sound, you know, and to... Uh, you know, I used to get flanging by playing two tape recorders and trying to start them at the same time right. and then put my thumb on the reels to slow one down and you get effects you can't get digitally. You know? Sure. You can emulate them, but you can't do the same thing. So there's advantages to both. Now, contrary to what Return of the Jedi might have you believe, Bib Fortuna was not Jabba's right-hand man. It was very literally Dave Barclay prominent puppeteer and designer for works like Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, and Little Shop of Horrors, to name but a few. This is an interview that Hex and I conducted at Megacon in 2010, leading in by asking him to elaborate on the experience of bringing Jabba to life. I was chief puppeteer for Jabba the Hutt, so my uh, responsibility was to uh, provide the guide voice on set. So I spoke for Jabba in English when we performed him, and I controlled his jaw in sync with my voice, uh, with my left hand. With my right hand, I was performing Jabba's right hand. Between myself and my co-pilot, Toby Philpott, who was on the other side, we controlled all the body movements and brought him to life. I heard that uh, you also operated the tongue? No, actually, that was Toby. Toby did the tongue, because I, I had the jaw, so to be able to close the jaw right. with my hand, because we only had two hands each, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to try and work out. Sometimes we used to do um, like tag team on, on what we had to do to make all the different parts move for him. So there's only just enough room. We were shoulder to shoulder, head to head, basically inside the hollow shell of Jabba, so very tight in there. You've worked on uh, Henson projects as well. Yes. Uh, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, yes. right? Yep, absolutely. When I finished working with Frank Oz on Empire Strikes Back on Yoda, he invited me to join Dark Crystal, and I was the first British puppet maker puppeteer on Dark Crystal, uh, November 1979, wow. and then spent the next like year or so doing research and development um, for the different characters, and then myself, Lyle Conway, built the uh, the Skeksis, the Erskets, and Olgra, so we built all those puppet heads. So that was an amazing time, because it was the birth of animatronics, and what's now become standard, we were inventing back then, Jim Henson allowed a great creative environment for everyone to work and thrive and that was fantastic nothing like it since um, they just the movie industry doesn't allow that kind of uh, development although the, some of the CG guys get that kind of development the, these days so I guess the CG is the equivalent cutting-edge technology that animatronics was then so it just recently completed was the I was animatronic supervisor for cats and dogs 2 the revenge <laughs> of kitty galore oh boy and, and I, uh, I built the most sophisticated 
sophisticated ever animatronic face in Mr. Tinkles. Oh, wow. 76 very extreme miniature cables going up into his face, just his face. Oh, wow. 76 for his face. So, and incredible. That all ran down to banks of servo motors that were all computer controlled through my proprietary computer system um, with special data gloves that I've designed and built. And we're also using some of that same technology to bring uh, to the real-time CG that the Hensons have done in the past. So. Now, with the cats and dogs thing, that's the sort of you know, puppeteering masterminding that might go under most people who love puppeteering's radar to a certain extent. Yes. What are other examples of, uh, of things you've worked with that uh, are just massive feats of puppeteering that you think people might have ignored or, or aren't loved as much as they should be? Right, well, actually, there was a huge amount of puppeteering on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, uh, you were I was a chief, major part of that, yeah, right? Yeah, chief puppeteer of that. So I d designed all the effects and built all the rigs and organized all the puppeteers. We had 17 puppeteers at the most in one day working all the different puppet rigs on the set because it was filmed before the digital technology so it was actually filmed as a invisible man movie yeah. so all the props would move around if a cartoon character was going to be in front of us and, and was going to move this desk um, we would have to make the desk move we may have to slide a picture if he was going to knock it all of those things we had to do without the cartoon characters there then they would draw the cartoon characters in afterwards so um, I think a lot of people didn't realize there was so much puppet work and it was Basically applied puppet, puppetry. Puppet ghosts, really. Yeah, puppet ghosts, yeah. yeah. Yeah, moving the props around on behalf of the, of the puppets, of the characters, I should say. And then things like snow dogs. Uh, we built an animatronic version of the lead dog, yeah. and um, the director asked the producers, well, what did you think of the animatronics? And they said, what animatronics? <laughs> so they didn't even realize that there was any puppets or animatronics in the film at all. So, yeah, sometimes we can do the job so well that people don't even know we've done it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you were also involved in a Little Shop of Horrors with the, the puppetry in there? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd worked with Frank Oz on Dark Crystal, on The Labyrinth, and back on Return of the Jedi with Yoda again. So when it came time to do uh, Little Shop, he asked me to be one of the core puppeteers and actually operate the lower lip. The, one of the That's the most emotive part of Audrey, too. Yeah, yeah just about. So, um, so that was neat. And then also, during the long rehearsal period, Lyle Conway, who is the uh, animatronic supervisor, and Frank asked me to build and perform the hand-sized version yeah. of Audrey uh, sucking on Seymour's finger. So I got to actually make and perform that one. So, oh, wow. so it was neat. Yeah, it was great. I recently actually saw the original ending to that, and yes. I was blown away by it. I wish there was a better copy of it that existed. The movie should have ended that way. Well, it was amazing. Richard Conway, um, a British uh, special effects guy, did all that work, and they, they spent like six, nine months on that stuff. And it looked massively it was, expensive, too. And it was phenomenal. They yeah. developed computer technology to move the uh, plants in a very high speed, because they were shooting at very high speed yeah. to slow everything down and give it the weight. So they had to move the plant really fast to make it move properly. So they developed computer technology way back in the 80s to do that. And um, it, was, it was awesome. Such a shame he, that all that work was, was never seen. Fortunately, just two years after this interview, that work was reinstated in the director's cut of Little Shop of Horrors, which we'll link to on this episode's page. Later that year, at Celebration 5, we did a joint interview with Toby Philpot and John Coppinger, where we went further in-depth in the process of making and puppeteering Jabba. You guys were two of the many people inside Jabba the Hutt. Well, no, it's right, yeah. I mean, John worked on Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. Mostly he built it. Um, I couldn't have had a job if, if John hadn't designed him. We had a small maquette from um, ILM that was done by Phil Tippett. So it was like an impression, and that must have been one that was chosen. Because if you look at the records, it's quite a few small sculpts of Jabba. So the one we had from Phil Tippett from ILM, so that gave us an impression. It was about six inches long. 
and it was just a nice little thing and then I scaled it up 15 foot by 5 foot tall and then there was actually a team of 6 of us building it so I was the clay mechanic I did all the sculpting all the detail sculpting in the eyes and then a team of 6 of us built him and operated him so yeah you see that's when my job started I didn't have a job until they'd built him then I went in for you know, fittings and checking it out and rehearsing, getting my arm moulded so the sleeve would fit. And I was inside Jabba with Dave Barkley um, when it was actually shooting. So we're the main puppeteers inside the body or the head. Actually, it's all one big blob, but yeah. we're inside there. My left hand is Jabba's left hand and Dave Barkley's right hand is the right hand, like a two-man submarine. Yeah. And with our inside hands, we've got jobs. Dave did the mouth and was doing the dialogue over the speakers on the set. And my right hand was doing all the head moves and was inside the tongue when the tongue was needed. So I'm half of the inside team, but at the same time, John would be outside with radio-controlled eyes so he could see what the performance and like help direct us just the same way the director was directing the film. John was keeping an eye on the whole look of Jabba from the outside and we're talking on walkie-talkies and so on. But, uh, you know, it's a team effort all the time. All the six builders were there, both me and Dave inside and sometimes Mike Edmonds, who's a little guy, who for wide shots was uh, working the tail so he was squeezed in with us as well so there's sometimes there were three of us jammed inside that on the death scene we had to do everything we had to wave you know like a head head tongue waving everything about so mike quinn i think uh, claims the eye bulge wasn't yeah. he? he was standing behind us popping the eyes out <laughs> we think there was eight people operating in yeah. the death scene because there were three guys inside and yeah. the tail of that one was basically just a string puppet being lashed about and um, there were two people on radio and two more people underneath so it's different for every shot basically depending on the shot and what you need to achieve you have a different crew but as i say we were hardcore the absolute minimum would be someone on eyes and two people inside. That would be the minimum crew. Actually, four. Sorry, because there were two radio sets. It was one for expression, oh, one for eyes. Yeah. So there was always two people out front the radio. And there was one guy in it who was only smoking, right? Yeah, that was his whole yeah. job. He was often putting cables, but on that shot, <laughs> he's smoking. <laughs> because you mustn't let oil smoke get near foam basics. Oil and some metals will make it rot very, very quickly. I mean, wow. Almost within hours. So we couldn't use oil smoke. So Richard Padbury's job that day was to smoke umpteen cigars underneath. Float <laughs> through a rubber pipe. So, you know, you think of sophisticated special effects, that's not what we had. We had a man with a cigar blowing smoke. I mean, that's me. My hand was just putting the hooker in the mouth, you know, and, and Dave was puffing and but the smoke coming out is, yeah, it's just cigar smoke. Well, no, he actually said that on the making of all I need now is a glass of port. And, uh, I offered him a cigar in the bar that evening, and that is closest to death I've been on that project. Yeah, he was a bit it's green by the end of the day. One of my uh, favourite aspects of Jabba is how asymmetrical he is, where it's like one oh, eye is alone. Mm-hmm. Was that part of the, the sixth inch, or was it that was. No, it came from the little macaque. Yeah, okay. and the shape of the eyes, too, because our boss building him was Steel Freeborn, who's a renowned makeup and special effects. He is Yoda by his own admission. You know, he actually looks like him. He's still around. He's still kicking it. 90 something. It's remarkable. But he was burning brightly at 65 or so on that project. But he wanted big round eyes, and that didn't fit with the sort of feel of the character. So my first proper job in film industry, I'm arguing with the boss about the eyes. So I did big round eyes, and of course it looked pretty much like a frog. And that's where the interior of big eyes came from. It worked fine because it, it gives him that sleazy edge, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. No, we thought live with it, and then yeah. we thought, no, no, that's the character. It's fine. <laughs> it's great, yeah. And uh, from Star Wars.
Wars the Jedi, I remember a scene that just showed the, the eyes by themselves functioning, and they, they look like real eyes, but there's some kind of microcontrollers inside of them. How did those eyes work exactly? It's always baffled me. They seem so realistic, the way the no, different eyes... basically, it's all radio controlled. They're small servos, and yeah. a standard model aircraft radio control unit, and um, the servos are operating. Uh, Bob Keane and Jess Harris did most of the mechanism. I was involved with sculpting the interior of the eyes and working with the vacuum former unit, getting the shells vacuum formed and constructing some of the mechanism, the clamshell for the MRI. The clamshells move back and there's ridges and they move little sort of finger pieces. So although possibly you don't see it on the film, it, it was all to get the, you know, the eyes being the window of the soul, that's the thing we made most effort on. So there is little movement seething about as the eyes operate. And the, the eyes are something that bring puppets to life. You know, even with a simple puppet, when you sculpt it, it's when you paint the eyes in that it, that it comes alive. And it's, it's a, even a tradition in old kind of Balinese puppets and so on. It's like ma when they're magic, like masks. They don't, you know, putting the eyes in is what brings it to life. It's the last thing you do. I mean, even simple puppets where the eyes don't move, it's true, but we'd worked on Dark Crystal, and the eye movements in there were crucial. We did a lot of work on when do you blink, when do you look left, right. Eye movements are very, very significant. So we'd already done a lot of practice on that, on Dark Crystal, as kind of uh, research, if you want. So by the time we got to Jabba, we got quite good at this stuff. <laughs> you know, because it, it really matters. Breathing, eyes, completely fool your brain that it's a living being, you know. Was it Dark Crystal where, I guess, the team really started working together first? Yeah, or? yeah well, I mean... You've got to remember that they'd already made Yoda, right. and that's the Jim Henson Creature Workshop. And to get away from his simple puppets, the sort of classic puppets of the Muppet Show, you could almost see Dark Crystal as a showcase for what else they could do. Having done Yoda, he and George Lucas were quite close, and you could see him almost going, I'll show you some other stuff we can do. Here's Dark Crystal, look at this. There's quite a crossover, isn't there, between both the performers and the sculptors of Jabba. They were working quite closely together, because it was all done in London. It's not an American movie at all. It's all London crew. And so like, I do see Jabba and Yoda and, and Dark Crystal as all part of the same experiment, really. And you worked on Labyrinth as well, right? I did, yeah. I did smaller parts, because I came in late, actually. I rang them out the blue, going, got any work? <laughs> and they said, we've just cast all the puppeteers, but they said, we need a few background people. We've noticed in, in the main palace shot, there aren't enough puppets. We need some more creatures. So this is how it works on film. You go in to do a week's work as a background character, and they go, oh, while you're here, could you just do the, <laughs> you know. The main thing I did in there was the fiery characters, you know, the red characters. Yeah. Uh, I'm Were you one of the black suits? In the black suits, yeah. The team I got on was fiery number one, which is kind of the lead singer, if you want. Kevin Clash was doing the head. I was doing the feet, hips, and shoulders, if you want, the whole body and thing, all the dancing about. And Dave Barkley was kneeling behind me doing the arms and the hands. So it's a three-man puppet. And they would film the, the set, then they covered the set in black velvet, covered us in black velvet, and we all do it virtually blind. And then they, you know, match the two shots together. Almost all those things were experiments. They were all kind of state-of-the-art things, trying things that were quite difficult, but, you know, going for it. John, you actually are a sculptor uh, primarily with the film works, and you, you actually did the diva costume for Fifth Element, is that right? I sculpted it, yes. So I was working with the costume department. I was working with Nick Dudman, which was creature effects on that film. So all the elements that are sculpted on the head to be a prosthetic makeup. The balloon shape behind the back of her head and the tentacles. So it's a combination of sculpting and fabrication to, to make all the headpiece and the decorative pieces on the costume. Vin Burnham was running the costume department and her team actually did all the corsetry and so on, so I wasn't allowed to do corsets. Um, <laughs> so it's a combination of costume and decorative bits and the, all the working parts on the head. What's your favourite piece you've ever done? Well, actually, oddly enough, Jabber and the Diva. I think Beauty yeah. and the Beast, you know, as simple as that. Yeah, the two best things. Because my when the best guy who performed the Diva was so good, 
which is up on 14-inch stilts and doing this rock number. And we did that in a night shoot at Covent Garden in London with about 4,000 extras. And Luke Bessel insisted that nobody see her until the curtain opened. Right. And she went for it. And oh, that's brilliant. 4,000 bored extras just went, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, was, it was brilliant. Yeah. Tricks for atmosphere, though, isn't it? Yeah. it is, it's important to capture things. And uh, one of the reasons I like Jabba as he was made, rather than the CGI one, is just atmosphere. You know, Jabba's palace really was that sleazy. When you went in there, it was really there, all of it. And you, you can't simulate that, really, with CGI. I know CGI is getting better, but the sheer atmosphere for actors walking in there where all the creatures are actually real talking to you poking you do you know what I mean yeah. when Leia leant against Jabba he actually went floorball you know. and you got to thrash her with, your, with the tongue yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah like the, the shot they didn't use was when the tongue actually licked her face the, the first shot when, when she was you know after the alcove thing when she rescued his hand yeah. uh, I tentatively pushed the tongue out because I couldn't really see what I was doing and they said yeah yeah okay. then I heard in my earpiece I heard Richard Markham the director saying uh, can you try can you push the tongue a bit further out and I went have you told Carrie Fisher that I'm going to change, you know, because you rehearse and block things in film. He said, no, no, I want a natural reaction. So I went, oh, okay, ready, action. And I went like this, and there was a kind of muffled scream and a thing, and a and, uh, and then I hear the director going, and I said, oh, what happened, what happened? And he said, oh, no, a little bit less next time, okay? We're just going to go for it one more time. And I didn't find out what had happened, but apparently I stuck the tongue in her ear or licked her cheek or something. And so it was in, coated in some kind of slime, right? Yes, yeah, nasty, nasty. Yeah. Um, but the shot you see when she flinches the back, yeah. you know, you know why she is, because the last time it actually caught her. And that's how directors get this stuff. You know, same as not letting the extra see the diva. You, there are some things you can't really act. You need the spontaneity of it. Uh, the film industry naturally because of budget constraints is pushing towards CGI and, and away from the, the analog and the real sets and the real real puppets and real animatronics. But there's a lot of people, particularly from our generation of filmmakers, who are really wanting to return to that because it just doesn't seem as real and no matter how good it gets, it's never the same. I think there's a real backlash. I mean, I get real kind of metaphysical about a real witness to an event. You know, for me, the Apollo program, the important one was Apollo 8 when three human witnesses went out around the moon yeah. and came you know, so that really is the Earth. And that, that was three, <laughs> yeah. the first three human witnesses that actually saw the Earth in space for real. Yeah, it's a bit real focus, but not, not just drawings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so my thing is it's yeah. possibly generational because I've noticed that the older fans prefer the original uh, trilogy mm. and younger fans don't seem to mind the new ones as much. And I suspect that if you've played computer games all your life, yeah. your eye is, is, is different. They actually see the films the same way that they see computer games. Whereas to me, I don't buy CGI. You know, the, right. the gravity is wrong. There's all sorts of dynamics in it that just don't work for me. So I like the proper quality. But if somebody likes CGI and that's their way of looking at the world, then they probably don't get so upset by it. I mean, I grew up with stop frame animation. And so we thought we were being clever. <laughs> and we were doing, you know, hey, we're going to make it 3D in real time, you know. I think the way our technology is going, it might come back full circle. Because I remember yes. working on Santa Claus and the, the producer said, can you make a freestanding walking reindeer? And I knew enough then to say, tongue in cheek, yes, I can, but I need 18 months and a NASA budget because I knew how you could get piezoelectric um, gyroscopes and you know military air bottles. But universities all over the planet were trying to make walking robots. Now you've got Honda's robot, you know, running up and downstairs. <laughs> Did so, they say yes to you on that on the no, walking reindeer? No, 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 no it's all much simpler. Than that. John's thing about the reality stuff, you know, you can do CGI that I'm not aware of. I don't mind CGI stuntmen. That's great, but nevertheless, most people I know want to see Jack 
Jackie Chan movies because he's actually doing those stunts in real locations for real. Yeah. And he gets that from Buster Keaton, who did all his own stunts right. for real, no cutaways, no you know, no gimmicks. What you see is what you get, and a lot of people like that. You know, you buy it. It's genuinely dangerous what you're watching. It's, it's exciting in a way that a CGI stuntman being blown up doesn't move me. You know, well, the best directors I think use the tools out of the box in the right way. Yeah, you know, they're not seduced by CGI. I mean, you can have a nice dinosaur biting somebody, and you probably use an animatronic head for that, so they really feel like they're being bitten. Yeah. And it's frightening, you know, you've got a 15 foot monster coming at you, but it can't get off and run across the set. But even the best animatronics can't do that now. Right. So but it's I, CGI. But I think come back in 50 years, yeah, we'll have yeah. robotics and nanotech and biotech, and yeah. you know, look what's happened in the last 50 years. Go 50. Yeah. You won't have CGI. You won't have real monsters running about, and they'll probably take direction. And once a bigger dressing room, they all joke. You know, <laughs> they'll no, argue it's, back. It's true. Yeah. I mean, it keeps on moving on, and uh, I think that there's no right or wrong about it. If I'm not aware you're using CGI, I'm happy. Jurassic Park fooled me. Yeah. yeah. I never looked at it and went, oh, I can't. Uh, no, yeah. the best combination of the two different tools. Yeah. And you never stop to think, is that a real head looking in the taxi window? Or is that, a, you know, you, your brain just doesn't stop to challenge it. And it's seldom been better than that since then, which is yeah. strange. I know, yeah. yeah. No, that is weird. Some CGI after that, much worse. So it was still well, a, so it, but, you know, there's good CGI and bad CGI. We shouldn't just discuss it as a, as a medium, but as how well you use it. Now, unfortunately, at the time of these interviews, we were six years away from the existence of Rogue One. So Diego Luna hadn't yet awoken us to the texture of Yaba. Therefore, we didn't ask about that. But rest assured, if we're ever able to reunite with these dudes or ever cross paths with the other fellas responsible for this great character, we will discover this texture. I mean, come on! So this is it for now. We will be back in two weeks with all the latest Star Wars news on State of the Empire. And as we approach the month of May, you can bet your acorns that we are most assuredly going to hit you up with some hot Willow Watch action. If you like this show and want more people to discover State of the Empire, well, you are our only hope. Please rate and review us on iTunes. There is a veritable galaxy of Star Wars podcasts out there, and if you love this one and think that we should shine brightest of all those myriad stars, then please go on iTunes, leave us a rating or a review. It is a bit of a pain in the ass, but it would make a world of difference to us. Rating is super easy and very, very, very appreciated. And if you leave a review, we will read it here on State of the Empire. You can also leave ratings and reviews on Podchaser, which is a really cool resource for podcast discovery that lets you rate and review specific episodes as well as series. And we keep an eye out in both places. State of the Empire is still co-produced by the Nerdy Show Network. And if you like what we do, then please do consider contributing to the Nerdy Show Network's Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdyshow. The equipment we use, the studio we record in, is all nerdy show and would not be possible without listener contributions. If you donate there, you'll get access to early releases and a ton of bonus content, including State of the Empire outtakes and extended discussions. You can talk to us or retweet us by finding us on Twitter at WillowWatch underscore. And you can find us on Facebook, not only on the State of the Empire page, but also in our special Star Wars spoilers group for the most sensitive discussions. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks with an all-new State of the Empire. State of the Empire is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida at Nerdy Show Studios, home of the Nerdy Show Network, geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. Discover more at nerdyshow.com. 
Our theme song, Maximum Rebo, was written and performed by Zantilla. Find more awesome tracks at zantilla.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our Bothan pals in the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group, the Nerdy Show Network Patreon backers, and SNES. You heard me right, SNES. Same as how someone might shorten Super Nintendo Entertainment System. But in Star Wars, SNES is a Besselet goon hired to work at Club Deja on Naboo. She's a little speck of nothing on the galactic scale, but has the distinct privilege of having been headbutted and knocked on her ass by the soft-headed human female, Princess Leia Organa. Good one, SNES. Consequence Podcast Network.